Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, listeners. We have survived technology challenges and <laughs> are excited to be here with you today. <laughs> um, so I have to tell you that like my my number one biggest pet peeve in life is having to do something twice. Like if it's like I messed up, you know, like it's fine, like I learn a lesson. But if it's like the universe was just being a jerk, for example, not recording your audio, it's like one of the things that I, I just, it just irks me to my core. So the way that I like, like tried to process that emotion before doing this, I hope will be like really outstanding because it'll be like the second run of this podcast is I actually did more research. So I have more things to talk about, Stacey. Well, that's exciting for me, but for everybody else, it's just going to be research. (laughs) For them, well, see what they're getting though. If they had actually gotten this podcast last week, they would have not learned as much. And so now that they're listening to it this week, because last week it, it didn't exist and we had to share the <laughs> second podcast that we had recorded early so that I didn't need to podcast immediately upon coming home from a camping trip. Um, instead, well, they get me immediately coming home from a camping trip, but they also get like more information and I think it's going to be great. Well, awesome. I, if you, if you are not familiar, if you didn't hear last week's episode, Sarah and I recorded this topic and I had a headset that was dying and now it's working. We got, we got a new headset. We fortunately also recorded last week's show, which we had done ahead of time because we were traveling. Now we're good. So fortunately, while the universe was cruel, it also did it at an okay time. And now we're back with you. And I think relative to the topic, it actually makes sense because both Sarah (laughs) and I had to persevere and push through uh, finding the positive and and focusing on it, which is what we're going to talk about today. But can I just tell you that this is the last week of the fiscal year? So... I'm sorry. It's the worst week of the year for you every year. Well, it's the best and worst. It's the busiest week of the year for me. I'll say that. And busiest. Yes. You know, for a tax professional, it's overwhelming what you have to do, but also like, hey, look at all this work I'm doing. That's great. That's where I am. So just be warned, listeners. It's, you know, (laughs) later than it usually is when we start. And I literally walked in the door, didn't even get to take off my bra, and now I'm recording. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, um, excellent situation for this week's uh, topic. Exactly. Do you want to just get into it? All right. So, I came back from my trip to Nantucket, um, which was an all-women's leadership conference. Um, Did you meet a man from Nantucket? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That pun was just... So, (laughs) funny story, you never mentioned you were in Nantucket when we recorded last week. I didn't have the opportunity to reference the limerick. Uh, There you go. See, we're just... You're already benefiting, listeners. Aren't you so, so much better? Grateful that you got Sarah's bad limerick. Um, yes, I was in Nantucket and I didn't see the man. I was at a women's conference. It wasn't like a women's conference, it was a conference and it was populated by 99.9% women. All right. And um, I had a couple of like experiences where I realized that. I had been expecting negativity and pushback and cattiness, and therefore that was what I was perceiving and thusly getting, right? Like if that's, if that's what I was putting out um, in, into the ethos as something to expect, then no matter what situation was happening, that's what I was perceiving and coming and reflecting back on me. And it occurred to me because I realized while I was there that some of the things that I was expecting were ridiculous. <laughs> that people were actually nice or, you know, not as judgmental as I had anticipated them to be or whatever the case uh, was. And it made me realize how very much um, this idea of expectation and positive thought impacts our daily life. And, you know, while you're going to talk about evidently even more science on some of that from a bigger picture perspective for how it might play into your life, whether it's, you know, at the gym or at the PTA group or whatever. For me, you know, I'm a woman with a full-time job and I am an executive at an IT consulting firm. And for the most part, I work with men. So while I've been used to working in that environment, it has been a learning curve for me as I started a business that is predominantly women. And so at this leadership conference, I'm representing my team of over 250 women, and I'm learning educational information, and I'm networking with other women who run their businesses to think, how can we share our mission? How can we you know, benefit these women financially? How can, how can we do all these things the best way? And I will say there is some of a small minority, you know, of people who are what I will lovingly refer to as information hoarders, right? (laughs) Like they're, they're like, well, I, if I, if I have this information and it's good for me and it's good for my team, I don't want to share it with anybody else because this, this piece of pie is all we have. And therefore I want as much of that piece of pie as possible. Um, And if I hoard my information, maybe I'll get more of the piece of pie than other people. And I think what occurred to me is that we don't just have a piece of pie. We have the whole pie. 
And when we work together and we share ideas and we network and we brainstorm collaboratively in whatever your situation or life is, you have the opportunity to figure out how to get the whole pie. And, you know, I I think if we don't think positively and if we don't expect the best outcome, then we're never going to get it, right? But if this idea of... um, always assuming the best of someone is something that I personally am working on because it's not my instinct. I'm a very worst case scenario, logical type person. And so when it comes to relationships and and people and especially working with women, like I have to, I have to actively tell myself it is not the case that this person is actively out to get you in in most scenarios, right? Like maybe there's a small fraction of people. Um, <laughs> every once in a while. Every once in a while. And I get it. I'm a strong personality. But for the most part, we all want to learn from each other. And so this this idea kind of brought together two things for me. One, that you know, I personally need to have better expectations. I need to walk into a room not thinking what are all the negative things being said about me or what is the disaster that's going to happen or whatever. I need to walk into a room and think, how great is it that I can make connections and share information and meet new people that can broaden my world when I walk into this room? And when I walked into a room with that mindset, I did meet new people and I established relationships and I created friendships that, you know, help not just myself and that person, but the hundreds of women that we work with that we can then share that information and relationship with. And so that perspective really brought me to this idea of focusing on the positive, not just, you know, working together and lifting each other up, which I think is super important. Um, but I think that's part of a broader conversation that you and I wanted to have once we started talking about it, which is this idea that when you think positively and when you focus on the things that are going well, instead of dragging yourself down on the things that aren't, you actually have improved health and therefore things will get better, right? Like if you, you can literally manifest your own mindset if you want to. And the thing is, it's hard. Like I said, I am not instinctually that kind of positive person. Um, So I want to just to like brainstorm that with you and with our listeners, because I think it's something that we need to talk about more often. And we need to be open about the fact that you know, some of us have these negative perceptions or feelings and maybe they're intentional or not. What can we do about it? And, you know, maybe if we understand the drivers of how it's affecting our health or, you know, coping mechanisms for it and and things like that, it could help us be better personally, healthy, all that kind of stuff. And I love what you said about uh, fighting for each having your own piece of the pie versus like collectively working for the whole pie. I think it's one of the things that is uh, happening more and more in society as we get more isolated. You know, one of the things that social media has done is it's actually made us more isolated. It gives us sort of the illusion of connection, but it's, there's studies now showing that, 
uh, social media use can magnify depression. It can magnify uh, feelings like jealousy. It can um, it can basically make us feel like we're inadequate. And I think part of that is the tendency to sort of post uh, the best and the worst on social media and like none of the mundane in between where most of our lives is that sort of routine stuff in between that we tend not to think is post-worthy. But I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's that, it's the fact that we're working more than we ever have before. Um, the fact that we, you know, it's, it's really hard now to not be in a dual income household. Like that's, that's a, the, the exception is now the single income household. And so I think that what's happening is we've become isolated in a, in a way and sort of combined that with the way jobs are structured now. It's all about standing out, this, this search for you know, power and promotion and that drive for uh, the next, you know, the next step up because that's going to come with the raise and the raise is going to allow me to retire early. I think so many of us are kind of stuck in this hamster wheel of um, work hard, be better than the person next to me so I can get the whatever it is. And uh, and at the same time, we've lost a lot of our um, sort of our social structure, you know, in, in <laughs> pre-internet um, you know, it, it was more common to like really know your neighbors to, um, you know, have a, a conversation with somebody that you bump into. And I think those things still happen, but it's it's not quite the same as it was, let's say, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I think that one of the the sort of side effects of this, the way that the Internet has really shifted society is um, that as much as we get put in situations where we need to be collaborative in certain jobs, when we're in that mindset of uh, entrepreneur, of um, running my own business, of, um, you know, seeking the promotion, we tend to forget the importance of collaboration and teamwork and the fact that we can all rise each other up and that if we work together towards something, we can lift everyone up and it doesn't need to be a fighting for the, the last, you know, scrap. We can all rise up together with a less competitive and a more collaborative mindset. Yeah. Totally love that visual. And also the idea that you said we need to step up in our lives, whether, you know, we are trying to get a promotion or get ahead or, you know, whatever it is, I think we sometimes confuse step up with step on in that comparison mindset, right? Like we, we don't need to take someone down to lift each other up. I think like there's a couple of you know, things that I can refer to here, you know, like there's a, a popular quote, um, you know, strong women lift each other up. And um, this idea of, you know, fighting for this uh, piece of pie versus the whole pie, like, if you think about a group of ants, right, like, they could all fight each other for the small crumb, or they can work together as, you know, hundreds of them and take the whole, by, the whole pie 
back to the anthill for everybody to feed, right? And and I think that is the abundance mindset that is so lost so often because we are in a chaos and we are in a hustle. And, you know, I see it even in my children's school because everybody wants their kid to be top of class. Well, you can't all be top of class. That's that's what an average is for. Like there has to be <laughs> an average. And um, it's okay. Like my kids are average. Like they're, and that's okay. Um, I mean, they're great and I love them, right? But like, it's interesting to me when I talk to teachers who, you know, when I say to them, Wesley is an artistic guy. Like he's imagination a hundred percent. He is never going to be like your top math student or your top English writing student, but he is going to love art and he is going to love music. And I want to foster that in him because that's his personality. And it's crazy to me that like the, it's like the teacher has never heard this before because I think like you said, years and years ago, that was the way, but it's not anymore. And, and I'm, I, you know, I don't want you listener to think, well, you know, I want my kid to do well in school, Stacy, you're crazy. No, of course not. But I'm saying like, that's not his strength, right? I want my kids to be the best versions of themselves at all times. And that's, that's an abundance mindset. That's, that's the, their best version of them. I want to be the best version of me. And that means that I need to work well with others and I need to play nice in the sandbox. And I need to do all the same things that I'm teaching my kids to do because it will help big picture that if we all work together to carry that pie back to the ant hall, we can all have it. Right. So no, I, I loved your analogy. And I think, um, I think maybe we could talk about, some of the reasons why this is not just good for for us and our personal relations, but also our health. Because I know for me, this is one of the things that you and I talked about years and years ago when I was starting AIP and I didn't see results for years. And you you hesitantly, like trepidatiously, were like, well, I've noticed you're a little stressed out and high strung. (laughs) Let me share this chapter of my book with you. (laughs) I'm sure that's not how that went down, but, but that's probably a good summary. Um, it's the, it's the like cautiously raising my hand. I'm like, excuse me, excuse, excuse, excuse me. Um, might, might have just, just just for you to consider. Yeah. Um, you know, as you know, when you told me that you wanted to tackle the topic of abundance mindset for the podcast, um, one of the ways that you phrased, uh, you know, research, you know, how, you know, how, how we can tackle this from a, a scientific perspective and sort of dig into some of the research was, uh, I think you phrased the question something like, is there any science behind the secret mindset? Um, or the, the behind the secret, which is basically, you know, uh, short. I just short want version. to be clear that I was definitely using quotation marks when oh, I yeah, said yeah. the secret. No, I mean, it's, I I don't want to imply that you were, that that is what you're talking about, but basically, the idea of uh, if I believe it, it will happen, right? And uh, and I want to emphasize that uh, what we're talking about is different than. Uh, I believe that I will win the lottery, so it will happen, right? It's it's a little, it's 
much more complex than that. Um, where my entry point was, was taking that and thinking, okay, so um, where in our health journeys does um, believing an outcome will happen, when does that actually affect the outcome? And as I was trying to figure out where to start my research, the first thing I actually was thinking about was the placebo effect, uh, which is really legitimately, I believe that this little sugar pill that someone told me is a, uh, you know, pill to lower my cholesterol. I believe this is going to lower my cholesterol. And sure enough, that ends up becoming like there is a measurable reduction in cholesterol. And so there is this well-established effect in the medical literature that is, it's called the placebo effect. And it, it is an actual measurable effect from giving a patient a, it's typically like a, something harmless, like a, a, it's usually a sugar pill uh, and telling that patient that this is going to have the effect. So I'm going to give you this. I'm telling you this is a drug, uh, and this drug is going to lower your cholesterol, but I don't actually give it to you. I deceive you, but you believe that drug is going to lower your cholesterol, and as a result, your cholesterol lowers. And so in medical research, there is that this is why there's always a control group and it's because of the placebo effect. So uh, it's, it's typically a small effect, something like 5%. Um, but it depends on exactly what you're measuring. And in some areas it can be a bigger effect than that. And uh, researchers always have to tease out like the effect of the drug versus placebo. It's not the effect of the drug versus no drug. It's the effect of the drug versus placebo that really is important. And so as I was kind of digging into that research, um, I also was thinking about um, mindset in cancer patients because there is um, a fairly extensive body of literature looking at things like hope, optimism, uh, you know, belief in, in cancer patients and looking at their survival. And that really brought me to this really fascinating field of psychology um, that basically looks at uh, positive affect and optimism and the roles that these have in health. And it to me, it's fascinating because this gets much, much deeper than placebo effect because it's no longer belief, but it's actually um, like a general approach to life. And I felt like this field of research more encompassed your experience in Nantucket, I'm saying the limerick to myself in my head and it's distracting me right now. <laughs> so what I do want to say is at least you're not singing this week because we had active sing song <laughs> in the last recording. Of this. Oh, the night is, the night is young. The night is young. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> you poor listeners. <laughs> but I do, I, I think that, you know, to, to distill your experience it was the discovery that a negative affect was holding you back and the intentional adoption of a positive affect and the discovery of the benefits of that. And so I, I thought that would be really interesting to dig into. We actually have a question from a listener that fits into this perfectly. So I, I do want to read that question and then we can dive into this research. 
what's exciting is that we've got the name of this question asker this week, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, we made special notes to make sure that we grabbed the name out of out of the email. Just it was improvements left and right. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Uh, this question is from Amy. I've read some scientific papers on how emotions such as anger and anxiety increase inflammatory cytokine release and the risk of chronic disease. While I've seen the research on how negative emotions increase disease risk and progression, I'm wondering what is out there demonstrating the opposite, that gratitude, happiness, and joy decrease disease risk and progression. Even better, is there anything demonstrating a shift in attitude from negative to positive reduces inflammation or disease progression? Thanks. I think I think Amy reads some like really dorky things. I think she's a super nerd. Do you think she's a super nerd? She used the word inflammatory cytokine. I'm just, I'm in love with Amy. That's all I'm saying. We can be in love with Amy and not say that she does dorky things. I feel like I nerd that is a much more like uh, respectful term. I, we, I we love you, Amy. Yes, I I uh, I see my I I identify myself as a as a dorky nerd. <laughs> I self identify so as a I dorky nerd. as a dorky nerd. So I was I was just more making the statement that that. Amy and I both like the words inflammatory cytokine release. It's all I was, I was just identifying with, with Amy, but yes, we, I, I guess some people have negative connotations around dork or geek, but not nerd doesn't have as ne- much negative connotation. So we'll go with nerd. Verbal hug all around. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned, the, the research into, uh, the health impact of positive affect and optimism, um, is is really phenomenal, um, and actually, basically, any sort of uh, there are basically positive psychological aspects of well being. So it's uh, not just things like optimism, but it includes uh, being somebody who regularly experiences positive emotions, who has high life satisfaction. What's really fascinating is there's this growing body of very like rigorously well-controlled scientific studies showing that this can reduce risk of chronic disease and even increase lifespan. And it's re- it's getting to be such a huge body of scientific literature that there's actually some great meta-analyses now. There's prospective cohort studies. There's actually quite a lot of data. And I'm going to highlight a few of the studies that as I was doing my reading – I felt made the strongest case for prioritizing uh, optimism or trying to um, trying to adopt a more optimistic mindset in the pursuit of whatever our life goals are. So there was a really fascinating 2017 study called Optimism and Cause-Specific Mortality. It was a prospective cohort study. It was data from the Nurses' Health Study. And what they did, I thought, was really clever because what they did was they measured something called dispositional optimism. And this is done with a, a series of questionnaires. But it's basically a way of quantifying how optimistic you are by default. So are you somebody who... Um, you, you know, the, your your natural state is to think the best, to think things will work out, to think, um, you know, oh, it's okay if it's raining today because the weather will get better by the end of the week, right? If you're just a type of person who, by default, tends to be more optimistic, 
versus somebody who's, you know, it's the opposite of that. And they actually divided people up into quartiles. So it was bottom 25%, you know, the most pessimistic people, uh, then sort of moderately pessimistic, moderately optimistic, and then very optimistic. And what they did was they, this was done in 2004, they measured with these, um, uh, psychological surveys, uh, how optimistic these people were. And then they looked, they tracked uh, mortality rates, uh, both all-cause mortality, which is an overall measure of health and, and longevity, versus cause-specific mortality, which gives you more detailed data about things like cardiovascular disease and cancer and autoimmune disease, uh, from 2006 to 2012. So there was this period of time in between that's basically considered like a washout period, which means that if you happened to catch a pessimistic person on a really good day and they tested more optimistic, this period of time kind of corrects for that. So it kind of allows you to um, be able to more accurately track data to dispositional optimism. So it kind of takes away a little bit of the effect of either catching a, an optimistic person on a really bad day or a pessimistic person on a really good day and sort of quantifying them, putting them in their quartiles incorrectly. And so uh, what they found was that um, there was a pretty remarkable improvement in health and longevity with uh, in the more, most optimistic people compared to the least optimistic people. And so what they found was – uh, generally, it was about a 30% reduction in all-cause mortality, which was huge. And this was once they had adjusted for sociodemographic factors. When they started adjusting for health behaviors, so they started like separating out diet, smoking, how active they are, uh, whether or not they have any health conditions, whether or not they have depression. So they started getting really granular in terms of what they were correcting for. And this is really important when you have this type of study that's looking for associations is to see this extensive list of uh, other behaviors that they're correcting for. So they corrected for absolutely everything that, they could, that science can tell us has an impact on all-cause mortality, and they still had about a 10% difference. So somebody who is uh, eating a healthy diet, who's very, very active, who doesn't smoke, who has low stress, who doesn't have a family history of disease, still had about a 10% improvement in their health outcomes if they were optimistic compared to somebody who was not optimistic. And as they started to look through different causes of death, they found that there was an improvement uh, from optimism, not just in this general measurement of health and longevity, but also in cancer, in cardiovascular disease, in respiratory disease, and infection. And depending on exactly what they were looking at, sometimes the effect was even stronger. So they were finding, um, for example, Probably some of the best effects are cardiovascular disease. This actually makes some sense. You know, in cardiovascular disease, you're talking more like a 20 to 25 percent effect. And given how um, the, you could draw a fairly direct link between optimism and perceived stress, and given how sensitive the cardiovascular system is to stress, it sort of makes some sense. Probably the weakest association was with cancer, but there were certain cancers that had stronger associations. So, for example, colorectal cancer had a bigger, you know, a lower, uh, a lower risk 
uh, from being optimistic. So it was a really, really fascinating study, and um, and I thought it was very, very well done. There was also another study. Uh, now, this was done back in 2009, but what was really cool about this was it was a meta-analysis that looked at pretty much all of the papers that measured optimism and health outcomes leading up to that point. And um, what I really liked about this paper was they actually did analyses on um, and and meta-analyses on papers that actually looked at things like immune function. And that always is really fascinating to me because I think the immune system is super interesting, um, but also because it's very, very relevant to all of our listeners with autoimmune disease and chronic illness in general. But I really think of anything that helps to regulate the immune system as being like a worthwhile thing to incorporate into the autoimmune protocol. So overall, um, again, um, they corrected for all different kinds of other behaviors. They um, grouped in terms of different types of outcomes. So it wasn't just all-cause mortality, but it was also cardiovascular and immune function, cancer, um, outcomes related to pregnancy, things like they actually looked at some pain research, which was really cool. And overall that they found the effect was about uh, a 17% improvement in outcomes. So about, you know, 17% risk reduction across the board. Uh, again, it was a little, you know, it was, it's different for different, um, different outcomes or, diff or different diseases. So again, like cardiovascular disease is sort of like a 25% effect, which is really, really cool. Um, what was interesting was this study showed a, um, a slightly bigger effect for cancer. So um, across the board, they found a 27% improvement in cancer. Um, they found improvements in pain, pregnancy. What was fascinating to me was about a 12 percent, 12 to 20 percent, it depended on um, exactly how they, they separated out the studies, 12 to 20 percent improvement in immune function measurements. And this was looking at things like um, C-reactive protein, inflammatory cytokines. So these were actually uh, the studies that they were incorporating into this analysis were looking at uh, quantitative measurements of how the immune system is functioning. There was um, a couple of studies that looked at T-cell subsets, which is uh, fascinating to me because they were actually showing that just being optimistic helps your immune system be more regulated. And again, this, this sort of large analyses of all of the data up into this point confirmed what this, you know, really well-designed prospective study that's more recent also showed, which is that dispositional optimism. So, you know, just generally expecting that good things will happen is very strongly linked to reduced risk of chronic health conditions, reduced risk of mortality, and that translates to improved health and improved longevity, which is, is fascinating to me because it, it really demonstrates um, something beyond placebo and beyond the belief that good things will happen, that simply approaching life with that positive affect and that optimistic attitude. There's uh, something about the hormonal environment, the neurotransmitter environment um, that that goes along with that, that is then feeding into different biological systems and overall benefiting our health. 
So the question I felt from there is, okay, great. So it's great if you're optimistic. What if you're not? Uh, what if you're, you're, that's not your default? Um, how can you become more optimistic? Can you, um, c- can you do something other than, um, you know, be, be like determined to be optimistic? Are there scientifically proven meth- methods to actually increase optimism? And the answer is yes, there actually are a number of different uh, methods that have been designed to address um optimism and sort of related, um, you know, general just sort of approach to life. What's interesting is there have been some twin studies done that have shown that about 25% of a person's dispositional optimism is heritable, which means it's it's inherited, it's linked to genetics, which is great news because it means that 75% is environment, it's learned. And so that means that um, pretty much anybody, no matter how... Um, sort of default negative you may be as a starting point, it reinforces that with at least some some effort that anybody can become more optimistic and enjoy the health benefits from optimism. Can we just pause to talk about how cool twin studies are? I mean, I wanted twins when I was trying to get pregnant with Finn and ate so many sweet potatoes and it didn't happen for me. But... Hang on, hang on. Pause, pause. Uh, it was just the pause within the pause. Sweet potatoes, what? <laughs> Whether it's an old wise tale or there's actual science, I don't know. But I read online that that was one of the ways to increase likelihood of twins. And coincidence or not, I actually knew someone who had twins and it wasn't, she had identical twins. Um, it wasn't in their family at all. And she was only eating like sweet potatoes beforehand because her 18 month old son only ate sweet potatoes. Like that was the only food that he liked. And so she was eating a ton of sweet potatoes and she and I had like this big long conversation about how she felt like that was the reason that she had twins. So anyway, <laughs> it's a completely so I, just, I, just, I think that's awesome. And I wish I'd known about the sweet potato thing. Cause I would have done it. Because I, I super wanted twins. Uh, twins do actually run in my family, but there aren't any for three generations. Mm. But I felt like, oh, you know, like it's it skipped a generation, but then it skipped another generation. So it's going to land on me. And I was really <laughs> like super into it. But I'd never heard the sweet potato thing. So there's probably no science to support that. But you never know. Maybe it's there. I'll look. But okay. Yeah. Like, that. like I, I recognize that there's probably not any science. Anyway, the point being twins are so cool. Like. Yes. They're just so cool. And the idea that you can do these kinds of, of studies is so fascinating to me. So that's all. You just like mentioned it like it was no big deal. And I was like, but wait. <laughs> well, okay. Here's the thing that's just fascinating to me though, is because you know, this is like the evil twin, good twin study, right? Because it's measuring, <laughs> it's measuring optimism in twins. So, you know, like, you know, that's what it is. It's like the good twin, evil twin trying to identify which one's which. I just, yeah. It's I I love twin studies as well, um, and I I find I find this type of data that you you really can't get any other way to be to be fascinating. But it do, it does mean that somebody has like a grumpy twin out there. I would be the grumpy twin. <laughs> 
It's cool. I don't mind acknowledging that. And I'm sure that grumpy twin is like, yeah, I'm not optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) But I strive to be because it helps my health. (laughs) It's like a 10 to 30% effect. It's totally worthwhile pursuing. Like when we found out that the podcast hadn't recorded and I was like, oh, great. Another opportunity to improve it. (laughs) That was exactly your initial reaction, Stacey. Wow. (laughs) Nailed it. So um, I want to actually talk about a few different uh, science-backed strategies for improving optimism. And the first one that has been is sort of like a the the newest um, but but pretty exciting strategy is called cognitive bias modification. And there have been a few. randomized trials now. Now, they've been short-term, so um, there hasn't been good studies looking at how long the effect lasts, so how long you need to necessarily do these treatments in order to have sort of a lasting impact on uh, dispositional optimism. But they're, they're really cool, and there's been a variety of studies done over the last decade or so uh, using sort of variations of this methodology. And so it it sort of boils down to um, uh, giving people uh, either uh, a story, so it's either a purely auditory stimulus or they get shown pictures, uh, and it's some kind of situation. And um, the person is told to very actively, actively imagine themselves in that scenario or to, um, you know, describe – what's going on in these pictures, right, to generate a mental image so that the, the, the participants are, or if, if you're using this as a, as a treatment um, uh, with a therapist, you would be instructed to um, basically um, engage with the scenario so that you are actively working through your expectations. Um, so you're, you're designed, you're, you're, um, Imagine yourself in that situation and say the, the story that you've heard or in the pictures. And then what happens is so you're, you're an active participant basically in your mind and then your the story will resolve. So uh, if it's an auditory story, it, the, the story will end. Or if it's pictures, you'll be shown a few more pictures and it resolves. And what happens is when you're told to participate, it is ambiguous whether or not this is going to go sideways. Uh, but as you mentally engage with the scenario, it then always resolves positively. And so people are typically given um, a, a dozen or two dozen of these in any particular session, uh, several sessions a week. The sessions typically last uh, 20 minutes or so, 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and what's cool is in this – in the uh, controls in these studies, they, what they take away is the, um, the, the prompt to imagine yourself as an engaged participant. And the other thing they take away is the always positive endings to the scenario. So if you're a control in these studies, half of the scenarios would end positively and the other half would end negatively. So it's, um, those are the things that they, they put the controls through, which I just I found I found cool. I was like, how do you control for this kind of study? That's how. 
Uh, and what they're actually showing is that over you know, four weeks of sessions three times a week, that they can have measurable improvements in mood. They can show decreases in trait anxiety, in depression, in neuroticism, and they show an increase in optimism and positive affect with this cognitive bias modification. And this is a type of therapy that you can actually you get with a therapist. And so it, it really does seem to... Um, in a very quantifiable way, improve all of the psychological traits that studies show improve health outcomes. So this is one really cool thing that you could find a therapist to do. Um, I also want to talk about the second strategy from improving optimism is definitely something that you can do at home uh, for very inexpensive. And it is mindfulness meditation. And Stacey, I, I know you love meditating. Just as much as instinctually for me to say, well, what a great opportunity to make a podcast better the second time. That's exactly how I feel about meditation. Though I will say, <laughs> since our last recording of this podcast, which you listeners were not able to enjoy, um, one of the things that I talked about was how using the juve light in the morning for me ever since our podcast on that by the way i've been uh pretty good about doing <laughs> that every morning because the health benefits were crazy um and so one of the things that we talked about is that i really enjoy that and it sets me up for success for the day like oh i'm doing this thing for me first thing in the morning it helps me kind of set my intention for the day and think about all the things that I need to do and how I'm going to accomplish them and really is a focus time and also helps me remember that it's okay to spend time on me and, and my health and that kind of stuff. Um, but I had said that I do usually use my phone during that period because I don't like to meditate and, you know, that <laughs> idea of like turning off your brain is very hard for me. And so it's been a week since last we spoke about this topic and I have each morning since then, you're going to talk about the, the science of meditation and stuff, um, intentionally put my phone down. Now I'm, I have like listened to a podcast or some things like that, um, sometimes, but I'm, I'm embracing the idea that this could be my meditation period and Yay. trying trying to allow myself to like truly zone out and shut off as much as I can and I might still be thinking the whole time and I'm okay with that like that's this is my this is my version of mindfulness and so as listeners you're listening to Sarah talk about the concept of meditation and the science behind it just Think to yourself, what are the things that I could do in my life to give myself this 10 to 20 minute window each day? Because it does have such a significant impact on both your health as well as your ability to think optimistic and have this abundance mindset that we're talking about. Because you can set your intention for that day during that mindful period. What I think is really interesting about meditation is that we have so many stereotypes around meditation and mindfulness meditation has actually been very, very well studied. It comes from neuropsychology. Like it's a very sort of different beast than that, um, you know, Buddhist monk 
you know, in a, in a cave for three months. Um, granted it, uh, definitely helped that the, uh, those Thailand, those boys from Thailand who were trapped in the cave for, what was it? Nine days or 11 days over the summer. Their, their coach had like trained as a, as a, in meditation as a, as a, as a Buddhist monk in caves. And he actually like taught the boys how to meditate. And that's one of the reasons why apparently they all survived this amazing like thing over the summer. It was, that was, I mean, I, I was riveted. I was like totally attached to my, my newsfeed when that was happening. Um, but we have these, these, um, these views of like, you know, somebody sitting in the you know full lotus position with their their you know singing om and just kind of it, it just seems goofy. Um, but what mindfulness practice really is is it is um, it is a a typically a practice that involves sitting quietly, uh, typically closing your eyes, often focusing on breathing. And really turning your awareness inward. So it really is about being attentive and aware of your current experiences and being able to be receptive to them and non-judgmental. And there's a variety of ways that you can uh, learn to do mindfulness. I think typically the most accessible is to do a guided meditation. And there's a bunch of apps that you can get on your phone for free. There's the ones that everyone's heard of, like Calm and Headspace. My new favorite is called Insight Timer, which is also a free app. And there's a lot of mindfulness leaders who will put their meditations on, into Insight Timer for free with the idea that you might then go do a, a you know, a, a retreat, a, you know, a seven day mindfulness retreat with them somewhere, or you might go to their classes or, you know, something. But it's it's a way of for them to increase their exposure to mindfulness students, but there's a, a really amazing collection of high quality mindfulness meditations within that app. And there's different styles. So there's um, typical guided meditation body scans, which I think is is probably like that's that's the type of mindfulness meditation that you might do at the end of a yoga class. But then there's meditations that are really focused on emotional release or gratitude or um uh, dealing with um, uh, prejudice, right? There's there's all different kinds of very very specific meditations. There's also meditations that are entirely sound based, so it might be nature sounds or gongs or um, basically a lot of stuff that comes from the new age sort of theta wave mu uh, music that are designed to through various sounds. Um, put your brain into a meditative state by altering, altering the brainwave patterns. And so that actually also has some science behind it, which is pretty cool. So there's a, there's a variety of different things. You don't just have to listen to somebody telling you to relax your toes and then relax your ankles. And if that's not your thing, that's not uh, my thing. That's not, and that's fine. I think what, what is cool about that app is it gives you for free. It gives you an entrance into all a variety of different types of mindfulness meditation. And then even from there, I think it's important to sort of emphasize that, you know, going for a walk without your phone can be a mindfulness practice. Um, you know, whatever a, a huge part of mindfulness is is really about having some time to just be in your own head. Um, you know, a lot of mindfulness practices is about not necessarily emptying your brain, but about 
acknowledging, right? It's acknowledging what's, uh, what's going on in there and kind of like letting it go. There's this amazing, and we have to put, we'll have to put the link to this video in, in the show notes. Cause there's this amazing YouTube video of this like Buddhist monk. He's like a huge mindfulness, uh, leader. And he talks about like the chattering monkey in the back of the brain. And I always think about that because a, he's hysterically funny and this is just an amazing video. Um, but B like that, that really, it, to me, it resonates, right? It sounds very much like what I'm trying to achieve when I'm practicing mindfulness. It's like, yeah, that monkey will not shut up. And mindfulness is about giving him a banana and just having two minutes of peace. And one of the things that he emphasizes in the video is that it doesn't need to be an hour meditation practice or 15 minutes, that mindfulness is about finding those moments throughout the day of peace. And um, it's about, you know, that that closing your eyes and taking three deep breaths. Um, those small moments are additive and they have tremendous benefit. Now, all that being said, most of the studies that look at mindfulness practice will look at at least 10 minute practices. Um, but what's really cool is they're starting to introduce mindfulness practices in schools. My kids have been introduced to mindfulness in their school. And that is actually leading to some really interesting studies that have been done in schools showing that it improves uh, metacognition, which is basically emotional regulation and behavioral regulation, which is really fascinating. Um, but that's adding to this really impressive body of scientific literature showing that mindfulness practice increases basically these psychological um, traits that are linked to positive affect and optimism. And it has been shown it in, in increases positive emotions, it reduces stress, it makes people feel more energetic, more at peace, optimistic, happy, uh, feeling uh, more accepted. Um, the The effects are, are pretty amazing. And so I, I wanted to kind of emphasize, you know, this, these, these are the sort of the two uh, for the average person who's just looking to be more optimistic. These are the two different strategies, cognitive bias modification and mindfulness practice. And I feel like um, while you can do uh, mindfulness courses, uh, my mom actually did the uh, mindfulness accreditation from UCLA, which is a phenomenal program. And I'm so impressed. And I've actually started reading the books, you know, written by a lot of those professors. It's like a really cool program. So there are definitely places where you can do advanced training in mindfulness. But mindfulness is very... Um, it's very accessible for people thanks to apps, thanks to things like guided meditations, whereas cognitive bias modification would be more in the realm of wanting to work with a therapist to help, um, you know, change, switch from a, a more sort of negative, pessimistic attitude towards a more positive and optimistic attitude as a, as a default. That so doesn't mean you're never going to get angry or you're never going to get you know, you, that you're never going to have a negative emotion. It, what it basically means is what your default is and, and how quickly you rebound to your, to your default. So those are, I think, the two strategies for the sort of, nor I want to say normal person, but like person who's not dealing with an additional uh, challenge to, to optimism. The other two 
um, techniques for increasing optimism come out of research in depression and PTSD. And so these are, I wanted to, to, to bring these into the, the podcast because these more specifically would be appropriate for somebody who has something like PTSD or depression, anxiety disorder, um, bipolar disease, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so for somebody who has uh, these additional barriers towards improving optimism, there's also some really cool other therapies that have been very, very well studied. And so I, I thought that it was worthwhile mentioning these in this entire conversation because this is the, this is the next level stuff. So one is called emotional freedom technique. It's also called tapping. Um, it actually is very uh, interestingly um, derived from sort of Eastern medicine, but it actually has been very well studied in scientific studies now showing that it can improve uh, a lot of these sort of uh, psychological uh, symptoms, things like distress, pain, cravings, depression, anxiety. It can actually improve your cortisol regulation. It can improve coping. It can improve quality of life. It can um, reduce uh, distress and depression, anxiety, in, and even pain perception in people with PTSD. So it, it really does have... Um, some really good studies that have been well controlled um, to help um, improve sort of the uh, psychological aspects of well-being that are linked with with health in people with these additional challenges towards achieving that sort of level of optimism and positive affect. So emotional freedom techniques have have been well studied. So again, this is something that you would do with a certified uh, therapist, but it is a pretty cool uh, therapy. The other one that has also been uh, really developed for PTSD is eye movement desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing or EMDR therapy. And EMDR therapy, again, it was sort of designed for, um, you know, veterans returning from um, violent, you know, battle zones and, and violence and uh, being able to, to process what they were going through. Um, and EMDR, it's a it's a multi-phase. Um, there's it basically. Um, my understanding of it is that it is designed to separate out uh, an emotion from a memory, so that the memory is not traumatizing. Um, so this has very specifically been um, uh, designed for PTSD. Although I I do believe there are therapists who are using it for other sort of related types of, of um, challenges. But it is, again, sort of a, a multi-step um, and very rigorous, right? So it, it's very, there's a very um, standard protocol that a therapist would go through. And it, there have been a number of studies showing that it can dramatically benefit um, people with PTSD and just overall increase uh, coping, increase um, things like 
anxiety, depression. Uh, it can improve relaxation, reduce stress. Uh, so all of the things that would sort of be a first step for somebody who is dealing with those types of challenges towards getting to a place of, you know, optimism and, and positivity and enjoying those types of, of health benefits that come with it. So I just kind of wanted to mention uh, these two sort of next level therapies for any of our listeners or, you know, your friends, loved ones who um, could potentially benefit from these types of therapies on their road towards something like mindfulness or cognitive bias uh, modification uh, for anybody who's dealing with those additional challenges. I have previously heard of tapping before, so that's interesting to me. And I love the idea of the science for more in-depth support, but I think also I've heard of a lot of people being able to use it still in daily life and practice for, mm -hmm. like you said, anxiety and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, tapping especially has been used in a more variety of different things, um, like addiction. I don't think I mentioned. Um, so I think, and tapping to me, I, you know, I have to honestly say I, I'm a generally fairly skeptical person when it comes to, uh, alternative therapies. So uh, it's one of the questions I get asked most often is, have you heard of blank? And is it, you know, is it good? And there's so many things out there that are not based in science. There's no scientific evidence support. And like people are being sold, um, you know, machines to use at home that are thousands of dollars. Like it, it it's a whole industry of, um, interventions that are, are for whatever, right? Pain or inflammation or it'll make you smarter, whatever it is, um, that's really sort of preying on people's inability to um, differentiate uh, that sort of pseudoscience uh, sales pitch from something that's truly science-backed. And I have to say, you know, when I first heard about tapping, I mean, the the way it was described to me, I was like, What? Is that a thing? But one of the reasons why I thought it was really important to include in this podcast is it is a thing. And even though it involves acupuncture points, um, it is uh, it really does have some some very compelling science behind its effects. So and, and very large effects, like far beyond placebo. So I, I did want to sort of mention that as a as a, as a cool, that's a cool thing with science behind it. I like those. We always like things with science behind them, which is why I appreciate your willingness to tackle this topic with me twice. I know, twice. <laughs> I must be a really positive person to, to talk about positivity twice, right? You must be. <laughs> um, and, you know, doing this kind of show has helped my, my little black heart you know, swell just a little bit. I'll love the Grinch. Um, <laughs> I so wish I could quote the Grinch right now because his heart grew three sizes that day. See, I just, I wish I knew the whole, I wish I knew the whole poem because that would be, that'd be an amazing little par party trick to pull out right now. Matt's probably going to drop in some sort of sound bite, but Wait. Um, I, I just want to first, obviously, thank you for the science, but also just bring it back down to a realistic 
everyday kind of example. I, I know I talked about um, the change that I made even just this week from, you know, since we recorded the podcast and looking at, okay, what's what's the next thing I can do? I mean, you and I often talk on the podcast about how, you know, we've been doing this for eight years now. You you had your eight-year anniversary, right? Seven. And, seven. seven. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, nevertheless, we've been doing this a really long time. And therefore, you know, we are more able to go beyond the basics of you know, the, the simple, well, not, not the simple, but the, the bigger things that are overwhelming in your life when you first do them and then become habit later on, it's easier to move on to the next thing that you can potentially look at or improve in your life. And I know for me, um, stress is one of those things that, you know, severely affects my digestion and my overall health and well-being. And what are the things that I can do to reduce the stress in my life? Because it will, especially long-term, um, affect my health. Stress is the number one killer in America um, because, I, at least I think that's the statistic last day I read it, when you look at all the different things that are caused by stress, heart attack, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, we didn't super go into it today, but you did talk about, you know, mortality rates and, and all that kind of stuff. We have even like, there's a chart in our show notes. We can put it in, uh, I mean, yeah, we can put it in the show notes that, you know, talks about things like cancer and stroke and, and different things that are affected by this idea of optimism. And when there's something that affects health and, and your ability to be alive longer that severely, I think, it warrants this idea of, well, what can I do today? What's the little step that I can take um, towards this? But not to overwhelm yourself with, okay, I got to download this app and I got to do the tapping and then I got to get the juve light and then I got to <laughs> do this and, oh, when am I going to meal prep? And it, it, then you're only adding stress to your life, right? So, you know, what, what I suggest is do the thing that we implemented and think positively. Think about the one thing that you can achieve. What What can you be successful at doing? And then set about doing it. And if you don't, and and if you have a day where you you miss it and you don't do it, that's okay. You know, like you've, you've made progress the other days and you'll do it tomorrow and and don't stress yourself out about it. And I say that mostly for my own benefit, because I need (laughs) to remember um, that for myself as well. But I just, you know, this, this idea that, you know, we're all going to hug each other and sing Kumbaya and everything's great. Like I, I get that's not, the reality, but we can all make steps towards being kinder to each other, being kinder to ourselves, being forward thinking when it comes to what, what can I positively impact in the future or in, you know, the people around me. And that sort of thing really will help you achieve improved health. So I Thank you, Sarah, for covering this topic, and I hope that it's helpful for people, but not overwhelming. We don't. We need to do the opposite of being overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and I, um, again, I think one of the reasons I w- want to echo your point. One of the reasons why this is so fascinating for us to get into is that we have figured out the diet piece. This I think falls under the lifestyle piece, but it's also sort of like a. It's it's not the obvious, right? Eat well, exercise, get enough sleep, manage your stress, right? This is, this is kind of next level. Um, but I also think that given the links between things like optimism and positive affect and 
other or, or reduced risk of other sort of behaviors, right? Like um, there's some interesting research in here that we mentioned about addiction and cravings and uh, sort of destructive behaviors. Um, this can be something that you work on implementing earlier on to help succeed in all of the habit formation that goes along with changing diet and lifestyle. So it's sort of individual, I think, where this is on the priority list in terms of, you know, working on it to, you know, working on optimism and um, uh, positivity. But I, I think that it's very compelling science that it needs to be at least somewhere on the to-do list. Like it, it's certainly not going to be high up on the list for a lot of people, but it is, there is a point of the health journey where this needs to be the focus. I think the science really is really compelling in terms of the benefits that we can experience from figuring out this aspect of mindset. Awesome. Well, thank you listeners for tuning in to episode 318 of the Paleo View because Sarah loves looking at those numbers every week and making sure that we know how to do simple math. Dude, I might not have, I might not have, this might be 319. I might not have updated <laughs> this. Oh, that's right. Cause the outlines are upside down. Huh? Yeah. Yep. Totally. Well, listeners who knows? Thanks for listening to 319. Who knows what number this is, but we appreciate you being here. It's gotten too high to count. I mean, let's be real. Um, <laughs> so the fact that you're still here, is wonderful and we appreciate you. If you feel the same way, if we could ask you to leave a review, share this podcast with loved ones, share the link on your social media, whatever it is, maybe that grumpy neighbor, you know, you just, just send them a link on Facebook. It helps us reach a greater audience and we appreciate it so much. So thank you again for being here. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. All right, I'm going to post uh, like 30 pictures to my Instagram stories from our camping trip right now, and then I'm going to go to bed. I can't wait to check it out. Such a good, so A, no bears, B, no venomous snakes, C, double bonus. Like you could have just stopped right there. It was so great. Working camp stove. So I would literally be like, I feel like a cup of tea. I can just boil water in 20 seconds. Like it was so great. And then because I feel like the next camping trip is just going to be a letdown because you can't achieve this level of greatness again. Well, so David's still not sleeping super well in a tent. So I still have debugging to do. Um, I still have to figure out like, and I've, I've bought him the like, super cozy queen sized air mattress cot thing he thinks he might want need a better pillow i'm mm-hmm. like okay i think he mostly just needs to, to relax get, to get used to it like maybe he you needs know, some melatonin uh i think he took melatonin oh. i don't know maybe he didn't um but yeah i think it's just right especially in uh, georgia the tree frogs are so loud here they're mm-hmm. like they're crazy so i think it was just like strange sounds, strange place. But even like the second night, it got quite cold. It dropped down about 60 at night. And that was just 
so lovely for me. I slept so well when I was when it was cold outside, but I was all like bundled up in the sleeping bag. And uh, he did not sleep super well. So there's still debugging to do. But what was lovely about it was we actually had time to go on some really cool hikes. We hiked up Black Rock Mountain. And um, I didn't. we didn't realize it until we were halfway down and we finally hit the sign. If we'd gone the other way, we would have hit the sign on our way up. Um, but we, you hike up to the mountain and then you walk along this ridge, the whole like up to the mountain, up to the summit. And the ridge that we walked along was the Continental Divide. What? Yes. It was that's super in this. That's in this area. I I don't even understand. So I, I mean, I would literally there was a sign that was like Continental Divide is like right here, and we're you, like, you know, my understanding of geography is such that if you were telling me that and that and the and the thing is in Siberia, like I would have literally no idea the difference between Georgia and Siberia's continental divide. So it runs north-south and on the east side side of it, rainfall drains towards the Atlantic ocean. Mm -hmm. And on the left side of it, rainfall drains towards the Mississippi river and the Gulf of Mexico. more than one because you said the east side of it. Yeah. So so the continental divide is basically, it's like a ridge that goes straight, you know, from, from south to north and it, divides where rainfall drains to so rainfall drains to the atlantic ocean on the east side of it and it drains to the mississippi river and the gulf of mexico on the left side of it and then there's like another one in the pacific where it like drains to the pacific ocean and i don't know where there's other big rivers i assume so it i would i just i was like this is cool i had no idea this was going to be part of our of our trip so we hiked up a mountain it was a legit hard hike uh, the kids made it. It was it was funny though because the last little bit, like, they I was watching my whole family and they're all like their legs are like wobbly and I'm like, okay, you can slow down, you don't want to fall and I'm like, ah, <laughs> uh, these guys. Um, and then we like went back to our campsite and had lunch and like hung out for a bit and then we did a hike down into a gorge to see a waterfall, which was definitely the hike that we should have done in the morning and done them in the opposite order <laughs> because. When you hike down to see something pretty, it's very deceiving, and then you have to hike back out. And it was steep enough that there were areas where it was just stairs. So it was, you know, you'd go up like six flight of stairs because this part of the hill is so steep. And uh, it was quite a hike out of that gorge. But it was a lovely waterfall, so it was super worth it. I love waterfalls. Have you ever been to Niagara? Yeah, I have not. That's on my I have, bucket list. I have. I want to bring my kids, so my kids haven't seen it. Um, I want to see it both warm and cold. Like the idea of mm, a frozen waterfall. I have not ever seen it in the winter. Um, but I also, when you go, go to the Canadian side because now I've, I've applied for American citizenship. So I totally think America's better. Except, <laughs> except, yes. If this is going in the bloopers, you better talk positively about America. Except for Niagara Falls. So the Canadian side of Niagara Falls is objectively superior to the American side. So cross the border and go to the Canadian side. Um, Because it's it's just – the horseshoes on the Canadian side and then the flat parts on the American side. And you can't really get a good view of the horseshoe from the American side. You have to come over to the Canadian side for it. And you can actually go into these tunnels under – Niagara Falls and like see the falls from underneath in the horseshoe from the Canadian side, which is super, super cool. So it's just, you got that I think if we're going to go that north, like why not go to Canada? Yeah. The kids have never been. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.